Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When then-President Donald Trump claimed he'd lost the 2020 election because of fraud, more than 60 courts and his own Justice Department rejected those claims. Nevertheless, the Stop the Steal movement flourished, leading to an assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. University of Michigan law professor Barbara McQuaid has dissected the messaging tactics disinformers often use to spread conspiracies, like Stop the Steal, with the hope that we can guard against them this election year. Her new book is Attack from Within, and she joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ex-President Trump's incitement of the January 6th insurrection is the basis of the Department of Justice's election subversion charges. These are charges Trump has argued total immunity from an argument that the U.S. Supreme Court this week agreed to hear. Michigan law professor and BC News legal analyst and former U.S. attorney Barbara McQuaid has unpacked the campaign of disinformation that's driven the big lie and other conspiracies, hoping that by naming and understanding the tactics, they can be defeated. Her new book is called Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. Welcome to Forum, Barbara McQuaid. Thanks very much. Glad to be with you. I do want to start with the news this week that the Supreme Court agreed to hear former President Trump's total immunity from prosecution claim for any official action he took while in office. This, of course, delays when his trial in a D.C. federal court can start. Can you talk about the significance of the court's decision to hear this claim now? Yes, uh, I think that, you know, some have portrayed this as a win for Donald Trump or a loss for Jack Smith. I would say it's sort of a tie for the two of them. And the court has decided that this is a matter of significant importance that it ought to weigh in on. And so I think a a complete win for Jack Smith here would have been for the Supreme Court to do what it could have done, and that is to summarily affirm the decision of the appellate court below, which rejected Trump's immunity defense. Um, and an absolute win for Donald Trump would have been for the court to accept the case give him the normal 90-day period to file his petition, and then set oral argument in its normal course, likely not happening until next term in October of 2024. Instead, what they did was something kind of in between to say, this is an important question, but we're going to 
look at it on an expedited basis. And so they set an expedited briefing schedule for briefs to be filed by uh, the, the Trump team, the government to respond, the Trump team to re- reply uh, within the next uh, month or so, and then oral argument on April 22nd. And so, you know, people are starting to do the math and wondering, can a decision be made before the election so that the trial can be started and completed in that time? I think the answer is yes, maybe, but only if there are no further delays, because we're, we're just about out of time. I think if the court acts quickly and, and decides this case in a reasonably prompt time, then I think the case could conceivably be tried and brought to verdict before the election. You say, yes, maybe, though there is a chance that we would have a situation where voters would not get a chance to hear the Justice Department's evidence uh, against Trump and his attempt to subvert the election before they even decide whether he should be president again. What other legal delays could happen that might make that be the outcome? Well, I think the question presented that the court has articulated is a little bit uh, vague to me. What they said is um, the parties should argue whether a former president is immune from alleged official acts committed while he was in office. Well, of course, Jack Smith alleges that all of the acts that Donald Trump committed were unofficial acts, outside the scope. And so it may be that that means there's not much room to disagree with, and the court really just wants to set some rules about what is and is not covered by presidential immunity. That could be quick. But if they decided that some of the acts in this case may be covered by uh, official acts of the presidency, what they could do is remand the case to the district court for fact-finding to make determinations about whether each of the allegations in the indictment is or is not an official act. And then, of course, the once the district court makes those decisions, the party that does not prevail there could start another round of appeals. And if that was the case, then this case isn't going to trial even in 2024. If Trump is elected, could he totally scuttle this case? Yes, I think he could. Um, you know, this case is brought by the Department of Justice with the special counsel, but the Attorney General Merrick Garland is the one who really ultimately is is the decision maker on this case. And I imagine Donald Trump will replace Merrick Garland with his own attorney general. And that attorney general could, if he wanted to, um, dismiss the case, fire the special counsel. I, I think that in the past we have seen other presidents exercise restraint and avoid doing things like that to avoid an appearance of uh, injustice or tampering. Um, based on the things that Donald Trump has said, I don't know that he would be so tempered and he would have the authority to do that. And so I, I think it's fair to speculate that that it, it seems like a likely outcome. Barbara, there are several cases, of course, against Trump, the Manhattan case on charges of arranging hush money payments, the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, the election interference case in Georgia. And I'm just curious where you put this one, this Jack Smith case among them. What what would you like people to understand about how you see the significance of this case? I think this case is by far the most significant of all of those four cases. Of course, the Georgia case is very similar to this case. It kind of replicates it, although it charges 19 defendants instead of one, and it uses Georgia law, and it focuses on what happened in Georgia. But this case is significant because it is not about just garden variety crimes. It is about an effort to undermine our democracy. So in 
New York. We've got a fraud case. And I think Alvin Bragg is framing it as an effort to hide information from voters leading up to the election. That's significant. The Mar-a-Lago documents case, I mean, certainly very significant that very serious, sensitive national defense documents were stored in a ballroom or a bathroom at a resort where they could have been accessed by uh, people unauthorized to receive. That's a significant case, too. So I don't want to minimize those. But I'm not sure there's ever been a more significant case in the history of the country than the federal election interference case that Jack Smith has brought. Because if that case does not prevail, I think it would open the floodgates for Donald Trump or other future presidents to try to subvert the outcome of elections, uh, to uh, try to defraud the people, to work on ways to submit false slates of electors and do other kinds of things to subvert the right to vote. And, you know, that is one of the most precious cornerstones of our democracy is that the people decide who our leaders are. And so that's what this case is all about. And so I can't imagine one that could be more important. Do you think his case is strong? What is your assessment of the strength of Jack Smith's case? It appears to be. Now, you know, it's been it's untested. We don't know the evidence. What we know about the evidence really is what we saw presented by the January 6th committee in in the House. And so that shared with us a lot of the evidence that is likely to be duplicated. I would say, though, that in addition to what we saw there on the televised hearings, will be only a portion of what Jack Smith will have. And that's because prosecutors have additional investigative tools that members of Congress do not. For example, search warrants. They can have search warrants to look for email content, search warrants to get text messaging content on people's telephones. And that can be such powerful evidence. The congressional investigation relied on people complying with their requests. And we know that people like Mark Meadows sort of complied and then he stopped. And so we didn't really get the full picture there. So I imagine that the Jack Smith case will be uh, every bit as strong as what we saw on uh, on the January 6th Congressional Committee, plus more. But of course, that case was not um, attacked. There was no um, other side there. There was no cross-examination of witnesses. There was no presentation of a defense side of that case. And so I think it'll look a little different um, when um, there is adversarial testing. So I think it's difficult to predict how strong it is. But based on the allegations and the evidence that we are aware of, it seems to me certainly a strong case, a provable case, and one that ought to be brought. With regard to the immunity case, I mean, the fact that the Supreme Court took it instead of letting stand the lower court, the lower court decisions rejecting Trump's immunity claims, does that say anything about how it might rule? I don't think so. Um, I, I think that they're like, you, you know, it took them three weeks to issue this uh, yeah. two-paragraph decision. And I know the, the initial reaction was, it took you three weeks to, to write that. But my guess is that there was some horse trading or compromise or arguing that was going on back and forth among the justices who, you know, certainly likely have some different views on these things. In my view, you know, Donald Trump has raised lots of defenses to many of his cases here, and some are stronger than others. This one strikes me as one that is very weak. The idea that a president could be immune from criminal prosecution uh, for acts that were uh, beyond the scope of his presidency uh, strikes me as a slam dunk no-brainer. But um, what the court, the way the court has defined that question presented, as we were discussing earlier, is whether there's immunity for official acts yeah. suggests to me that they are assuming Donald Trump is going to uh, claim, and as he has, it, his defense is these were official acts. I was doing these. I was just doing my job. 
Um, you know, there's good responses to that, that it is not your job to count ballots in other states. That's outside the as the scope of the president's duties. But even Jack Smith, back in January or so, when he sought to leapfrog the Court of Appeals, you know, I think his interest was probably moving things quickly. He filed um, a petition with the Supreme Court to say, we should skip the Court of Appeals. Everybody knows whoever loses in the Court of Appeals is going to bring this to the Supreme Court. Time is of the es- essence because the public has a right to a fair trial, just as the defendant does. And so this is a matter of great significance, U.S. Supreme Court. So you ought to take it up and skip this whole intermediate step. The court did not do that. They sent it back to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. That court did act reasonably quickly. And now here we are. And so I think it's a little difficult for Jack Smith now to say, oh, never mind, Supreme Court. It's not important at all. Um, It is important. And I think I I, I don't think that uh, Jack Smith is doomed here. In fact, I think what's likely to happen is the court just thinks this is an important matter. And going forward, there is this concern that every president will prosecute his predecessor um, if there's no boundaries. And so um, for official acts, like, for example, um, if um, uh, President Truman authorizes the use of the bomb uh, on Japan, can he be tried for murder later? That was clearly within the scope of his official duties as uh, the commander in chief of our armed forces. And so I think most would agree the answer should be no. He shouldn't have to worry about second-guessing. He should try to do everything right. He should consult with White House counsel, with the Department of Defense. And if he believes this is the best thing for the country and it's legal, then he should do those things without worrying about repercussions. And so it may be that they're just looking to find where that line is, uh, Mm -hmm. even if they are going to affirm the Court of Appeals. Well, listener Robert is worried. Robert writes, the court had the opportunity to weigh in on presidential immunity truly expeditiously by accepting Jack Smith's request for a fast hearing in December. The current calendar plays into the former president's strategy of delay. We're talking with Barbara McQuaid, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School and a former U.S. attorney. You may have seen her analysis on NBC News and MSNBC as well. She has a new book called Attack from Within that talks a lot about January 6th and we'll dig into the disinformation tactics that were used after the break. Stay with us. I'm Nina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Three years after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, two-thirds of Trump supporters still believe the 2020 election was stolen. And perhaps even more alarming, writes my guest Barbara McQuaid, 52% of them have no confidence in the 2024 election. We're talking this hour about the court case that is 
charging Donald Trump with election subversion because of incitement during January 6th, and also the disinformation tactics that were used in that campaign and in current political campaigns and messaging that we're seeing today. Barbara McQuaid has written a new book called Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What kinds of disinformation tactics have you encountered? How do you think we can defeat disinformation? Or what do you do in your own life to try to address it? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can always call us at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Barbara, in your book, you start with January 6th, and you talk about Roseanne Boyland, who was part of a mob that stormed the Capitol building. What happened to Roseanne? Yeah, so Roseanne Boylan was a woman from Georgia who had gone down the rabbit hole of disinformation, according to her sister, believed that the election had been stolen, and drove 10 hours from her home to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Uh, She was there outside. She was uh, um, in the crowd that was trying to breach the Capitol. Um, There was a a crush of bodies. She uh, went down, collapsed, and uh, in the crowd... Uh, emergency uh, medical providers were unable to resuscitate her in time, and she died. Now, certainly there were controlled substances found in her system that contributed to her death, but her sister said um, she would not have been there at all if not for all the disinformation. For all the disinformation. And and do you want to take a moment to sort of define disinformation against, say, other things we've heard like misinformation or malinformation? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that it's capable of a lot of def- definitions. So I'll just say, as I use it in, in my book, I use the term disinformation to mean the, the use of lies, false claims, to deceive people, uh, disinformation. Um, and then misinformation, I define as it's a sort of a unwitting cousin. Uh, when uh, people of good faith hear information that is false and they believe it uh, and spread it to others, they are sharing misinformation. And um, I think all too often we, we fall for that. We see something that's exciting. We think it's true. We believe it and we pass it on to others. And you would put the false claims that Biden had used fraud to steal the election as disinformation. Yeah. Um, and that's based on the fact that we now know that through audits, through court cases, uh, through testimony of the cybersecurity director, the former attorney general of uh, William Barr, many other sources, that there just was no fraud in the election. Um, and in fact, um, you know, Rudy Giuliani said the night of the election, we're just going to say we won. Uh, Steve Bannon announced a few days before the election that Trump's just going to say he won and refused to give up power. And so I think it has been credibly debunked that there was no theft of the election. There was no widespread fraud. Uh, Joe Biden won that election. And yet there are others who are willing to put out that false claim and and, and, and yet even more other people who believe it. Does it go to the tactic that you write about in your book, in part, go big, that essentially says that a false claim can become more believable the more audacious it is, the more that it is proven to true. Yeah. Um, so Hitler writes about this in Mein Kampf, which I find so fascinating. 
And what he said there is most people tell white lies in their everyday life. Uh, my sister might say to me, yeah, your hair looks fine. And maybe she's not being truthful. Or my husband might say, um, no, that dress doesn't make you look fat, dear. Um, we all do that, right? We engage in white lies out of a place of love and kindness. But what what Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf is most people could never imagine that anyone would have the audacity to lie about something of great significance. And that is what makes the lie more believable. And so in this ironic way, the bigger the lie, the more outrageous the lie, the more likely it is to be believed. And so, you know, the idea of the election was stolen, you know, in um, all of these swing states, there were, uh, you know, an army of volunteers who were stuffing ballots and there were machines that were flipping and there were, um, uh, you know, electors who were violating the law and these false slates, all of these things is so preposterous. And I think the the audacity of it is what makes it believable to some people. There's also a piece of this that really became quite quite clear in reading Trump's speeches to the mobs on January 6th of this real othering piece uh, by creating sort of this amorphous other or they that is trying to overcome you or even declaring what is trying to overcome you but making it seem like they are truly an enemy, truly somebody to be deeply feared and protected against. I'm wondering if actually you wouldn't mind reading where you describe some of the ways that Trump stoked outrage um, on January 6th in your book. Yeah. Um, in fact, if I could find that that portion, I will do that. Um, <laughs> But um, maybe we could talk about another question first while I look for that. Yeah. Well, also, it's on page 233 in your book. But feel free if you want to set up um, that passage as well as you find it. Um, because it is this this tactic that, I mean, it was interesting. You just compared um, one of the tactics that Trump used in terms of go big to a tactic that, that Hitler used as well. And uh, it's making me think about how othering was also a massive part of his of, of Hitler's tactics, which is something actually the Biden campaign has recently tried to link Trump to. And would love to get your thoughts on that as well. But were you able to find the passage? Yes, I have it now. Um, and, and so, um, you know, that, that really is the point. And, and this is from, you know, the speech on January 6th. The book says, indeed, during his speech that day, Trump stoked outrage with disinformation about a stolen election. He described a rigged and corrupt election, an egregious assault on our democracy that was enabled by biased news media. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. Trump tapped into the, into the crowd's grievances and fears of replacement. He warned that they want to take down or rename the monuments to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln. He told his supporters, you're the real people. You're the people that built this nation. He said, our country has been under siege for a long time, far longer than this four-year period. Trump referred to his predecessor as Barack Hussein Obama, including the 44th president's middle name to signal his otherness. Trump further appealed to bigotry by saying they also want to indoctrinate your children in school 
by teaching them things that aren't so. The speech included a call to action. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. We will not let them silence your voices. And we can't let that happen. We must stop the steal. And then we must ensure that such outrageous election fraud never happens again, can never be allowed to happen again. Otherwise, he warned, you'll have an illegitimate president. That's what you'll have. And we can't let that happen. We must stop the steal, and then we must ensure that such outrageous election fraud never happens again, can never be allowed to happen again. Many heard Trump's words as a command from the president and commander-in-chief to take the law into their own hands. It's interesting how much is laid out in that that ended up being major sort of efforts um, by people who, who support him with regard to everything from education to this particular election. I mentioned earlier, too, this they, this using them, and this attempt to create otherness was called out by Biden's campaign with regard to undocumented immigrants, where they linked Trump's comments like poisoning the blood of our country to Hitler, mentioning the contamination of the blood and the fall of Germany, and also Trump's use of the word vermin to describe his political rivals, which was also used by Hitler. Do you think that's that's fair, uh, first of all, that, that the Biden campaign did that? I do. I, I think that these are the exact same words. And, you know, Donald Trump is so different from prior presidents who may have said, we have a problem at the border. We need to shore up immigration. We need to come up with a solution. Um, instead, Donald Trump uses these words that are associated uh, with Hitler, um, strong men, because, you know, this is a, a trite term. It gets overused. But this word dog whistle, um, people hear that and they know what it means. It means um, those other people who aren't like us, you know, even referring to they want to tear down the statues of Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln. Um, I don't think so. I don't think Joe Biden wants to do that. But they, they're all lumped together. It's us versus them. Um, there is the side of good, historic, patriotic America. And then there's all of them who are somehow different and other. And, and of course, the very idea of America is that all are equal, all are welcome here. Um, but instead, Donald Trump, I think, is focusing on uh, an idea of America that is white, is male, is Christian, is straight. And everybody else um, uh, is, is part of the them. Um, even his phrase, make America great again, um, I'm not the first to notice this, but um, it suggests that Mer America used to be great. We are no longer great because of this uh, decline we have suffered through these other people, but we can be great again. And what was great in their view? It was a time when um, white men were were on top and everybody else kind of knew their place. Um, and so uh, that is what I think is a vision of America that Donald Trump seeks to represent. And it appears that there are many people in this country uh, for whom that is an appealing vision. Let me go to caller Michael in Boston. Michael, you're on. Yes, I spent a good chunk of my youth laughing at people who blamed the Russians for everything. But I really do have to ask that since the Russians are very good at misinformation, uh, 
and they've done they've used it a lot in other elections in other countries how to what extent do we know that this is entirely an attack from within hmm. thanks i mean especially no, I, I, in, the, in the age of social media yeah michael i think it's a great question and i think the answer is no it's not entirely an attack from within in my book you know, just suggest that what's what's kind of new about the attack is now we're seeing some of the same tactics that have traditionally been used against us by our adversaries are being used by people within the United States. But m- most certainly Russia is still at it. Um, I saw a briefing recently involving, um, you know, some of the things that Russian intelligence are putting out into so- the social media sphere. I don't think it's any... Um, uh, secret that that's happening. I know um, the Secretary of State of my state is working hard against the uh, disinformation that she expects to come with, um, you know, things like social media influence campaigns or um, artificial intelligence with fake robocalls and other things. Um, to Just to put it in perspective, Michael, the um, there's some really chilling descriptions in the Mueller report. And I know the Mueller report sort of um, landed with a thud only because I think there was a lot of anticipation that it was all about Donald Trump and that Donald Trump would be charged with a crime and um, other people thought it fully exonerated Donald Trump. Um, But it has a lot of really fascinating information in there about Russia and about how Russia engaged in an influence campaign in the 2016 election. They certainly haven't stopped. They're still at it. But some of the things they did in 2016 and what Mueller and his team did is they found specific social media accounts that were posing as grassroots American political activists and very patiently over many, many months leading up to the election attracted followers, very large bases of followers. Uh, There was one called Blacktivist that looked like a grassroots black activist, said a lot of things that many people would agree with, um, nothing too terribly edgy, some things very uh, common sense, but designed to attract black voters. And then just before the election said, Hillary Clinton has never done anything for us. We shouldn't do anything for Hillary Clinton. We should stay home. We should send a message. She's taken our vote for granted. And so we'll never know what effect that messaging had on voters. But, you know, there were millions of followers on that account. Um, And there were many, many other accounts just like that one that was out there messing with people on the left and the right. There was one called United Muslims of America. There was one called Heart of Texas. There was one called Tennessee GOP. And they were posing as activists, uh, some conservative, some progressive, and saying things designed to influence people in their opinions. And so Russia is most certainly at it. Again, I don't know to what extent, you know, when you see things like Tucker Carlson going over to Russia and interviewing Vladimir Putin. I, I, you know, I really have to wonder, what is that all about? But I also think there is an admiration uh, in the far right for some of the things that Vladimir Putin does, because he has a strong vision of this traditional idea of what a country should be, you know, rejecting things like the LGBTQ community and, you know, this idea that we need to project strength as opposed to compassion or empathy, I think appeals to some people. The other thing that I was struck by, as you mentioned, Russian tactics that are also used within our country was the tactic of reflexive control, where they were able to do something because they understand the reflex that would likely happen as a result. So you describe 
you know, during the 2016 presidential election, the public heard a recording from an Access Hollywood tape in which Trump made vulgar remarks about sexually assaulting women. And then hours later, Russia released email messages stolen from the DNC that revealed infighting among members of the party. Do you want to say more about the reflexive control tactic? Yeah, this is so interesting. Um, I learned about this from some of the work of Asha Rangappa. She is a scholar at Yale who is a former FBI counterintelligence officer. Um, and she talks about this idea of reflexive control. And that is, it's also sometimes referred to as active measures. And that is, if I engage in one kind of behavior, I can predict what the response will be. I mean, at its simplest level, it's sort of like when you use reverse psychology on your children and say, don't eat those peas, because you know that they will rebel and do exactly what you say not to do. It's a little bit like that. You may be a little more sophisticated, but that's the idea behind it. Um, so for the Access Hollywood tape, for example, um, when that came out, Russia knew that the media cannot resist that which is shiny and new and controversial. And so when that tape came out shortly before the election, likely to damage the fortunes politically of Donald Trump, um, we saw they chose that time for the moment to release the emails that they had hacked and stolen from the Democratic National Committee. These were true emails, accurate emails, but emails that showed infighting in the Democratic Party, maybe some favoritism for Hillary Clinton, and it created a lot of controversy. And so suddenly, Access Hollywood was off the headlines, and all of this email drama was on the headlines. And that's because Russia took one act, dropping these emails, knowing that the media would engage in another act, publishing them, um, because they could predict how uh, the media would react. I would suggest that William Barr, the attorney general, did something very similar when he published his summary of the Robert Mueller report and did not allow the full report to be released for some weeks until after people had said, read his summary. Um, to this day, there are many people who believe that Robert Mueller fully exonerated Donald Trump because all they ever read was the Barr memo and Barr knew they would never read the full report. We're talking with Barbara McQuaid about her new book, Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. And we'll have more with her and with you after the break. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about disinformation this hour, the tactics disinformers use to spread it, and why we're vulnerable to it. We're talking with Barbara McQuaid, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and also a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, and co-host of the podcast Sisters in Law. We're hearing from you, our listeners, what kinds of disinformation tactics you've encountered, why you think they can be so effective, how you think we can defeat it or what gives you hope that we can despite the persistence and pernicious nature of disinformation i'd love to hear if you have hope that we can and why email address forum at kqed.org our social channels are at kqed forum on x instagram our digital community on discord you can call us at 866-733-6786 866-733-6786 kurt writes i believe that many people have an appetite for comfortable untruth From that point of view, the misinformers are just feeding a suppressed need. We can't fix the problem if we are half blind to the causes. This idea of comfortable untruth, it reminds me of a few of the concepts you've talked about just in terms of um, why we hold on to things, even if it's untrue, because there's something in them that fills a need or makes us feel good. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure I've thought about it just that way, but I do agree with the premise that we are willing to accept things that are false because of our own biases, our own cognitive biases. There's a chapter in the book that talks about some of these cognitive biases that we all have, Um, you know, cognitive dissonance. We have to either, uh, if we like the person, we want to like their message. And if we don't like their message, we either have to reject the message or reject the person because it just doesn't compute. You know, we want we want all this consistency in our lives. So maybe that's some of what we're talking about here with um, comfort in distruth. I think that there are plenty of people who have fallen for some of the lies that have been put out there in recent years, whether they're coming from Donald Trump or other politicians or Russia or elsewhere. And I think there are plenty of others who are willing to go along with the con. And maybe it is this idea of comfort. I see it maybe a little more cynically than that, which is for political advantage or profit or personal gain. Um, You know, I don't believe for a minute that Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley believe that there was election fraud. They're just too smart. They're Ivy League educated lawyers. And yet they were willing to push these claims of fraud um, in the election. And why would they do that? I, I can only speculate that there is Um, a political motive there of keeping their party in power. And that, to me, is what is so deeply troubling, so incredibly unpatriotic, which is that some people are willing to choose tribe over truth. And I think we see that online sometimes, where people want to virtue signal membership in their own team, uh, regardless of whether what they're saying is helpful or truthful or vitriolic. Um, You know, one example I talk about in the book, I I spent some time researching this because I've been fascinated by it. And that is when members of the far right refer to the Democratic Party as the Democrat Party, they most certainly know that's not the name of the party, that it's called the Democratic Party. I'm sure they know that because some of these people are members of Congress. So why do they do it? Um, It doesn't really land with their opponents. I don't think their opponents care. I think they think you just sound kind of dumb. Um, So why do they do it? And I think it is to signal their membership in this far right tribe. I am willing to say Democrat Party. I'm part Mm -hmm. of the group. And I think the other thing we're seeing these days is people willing to refer to some of the January 6th defendants as hostages. They most certainly know they're not hostages. Representative Elise Stefanik, 
uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene are referring to them as hostages. I, I can't believe they really think that, but I, I think they're willing to go along with the con. We often hear certainly it's not just far-right members of the GOP who use these kinds of tactics. These tools, these tactics are available to anyone. So can we draw an equivalence here between the right and the left in terms of use of this in this democracy context? I I think that some of these uh, techniques are used by anybody who is willing to put um, their political interests ahead of truth. And so, you know, sometimes we see on the left uh, demonizing their opponents on the right, that, um, you know, they want to put kids in cages uh, when it comes to the immigration uh, situation or, um, uh, you know, they 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 hate people. They want to eat your children, you know, all of these kinds of things. So I think that we see sometimes, you know, this idea that every election is an existential threat to life as we know it. I think sometimes that is an effort to demonize our opponents. I hear a lot of Democrats talking about we got to fight, we got to fight, 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 and you know that is not um, uh, a way to solve problems in this country. I also think the left has sometimes adopted a view of political purity. Unless you agree with me on every issue, um, then I am not going to compromise in any way on issues where we can find common ground. And I don't think that's the way to get things done. The you know the art of politics is all about compromise. And it's frustrating, I'm sure, if you feel like your voice has been silenced for too long and you've waited uh, forever for um, the Congress to recognize causes that are important. You know, if you've got a child who's been killed by gunfire, I'm sure being told to wait and compromise um, is maddening. But um, if we want to make any progress at all, I think that's the only way to do it. And I think we have to be you know, honest about things. And I think we can't just demonize our opponents uh, and expect the public um, to support us when there's compromise. Let me go to caller Avi in Emeryville. Avi, you're on. Hi, um, I'm now in Berkeley and I'm driving and I'm just going to pull over so there's no road noise. But what I wanted to say was the following. I think disinformation and misinformation have, as has already been pointed out uh, in the conversation, have become a critical threat to society. And when we have a critical threat of that nature that's posed to society, what we've successfully been able to do is to develop new habits that will help us fight that threat on the individual uh, level. So that, for example, um, if you look at COVID, people learned very quickly, every time you touch something, sanitize your hands. Um, if we've, you know, you've lived in an area where there's terrorism, then you learn very quickly that if you see something, say something. If you see a backpack left on the side of the road, then say something. And I think that with the rapidly evolving emergence of technologies, of deep fakes, of AI, um, of sophisticated techniques for faking accounts, um, I think that something that we need to do is to become much more aware as a society of ways that we can see something online and immediately question and say, wait, and not just if it's a political message. Um, For example, if we see some cute picture of a little kid and a puppy playing in a mud puddle and the kid looks exactly like the puppy, we should be trained to look and see if that's really a photograph, a cute photograph, or if somebody faked it using AI. And there are ways to do that. There are ways to detect deep fakes. There are ways to check fact check accounts. And I think that as we approach the election, we're going to see uh, videos, deep fake videos of people saying things that look absolutely genuine. We're going to hear accounts um, from 
people who present themselves as reporters. This has already happened, actually, in the Gaza-Israel crisis, where someone presented themselves as a reporter, and it took about a week before someone realized that, no, this person never actually worked for Al Jazeera. So I think we need, my point is that I think that as a society, we need to become much more vigilant and much more aware and don't and get into the habit of not accepting something that we see or read on the Internet as real so that when that is used politically, we don't then accept it as real. Bobby, thank you. And I mean, you touch on this, of course, in your book uh, about the fact that the tools have gotten very sophisticated, deepfakes, the bots, and so on. And those, there are some things that exist, but it's very difficult to be able to detect when something is a deepfake unless you have access to certain levels of technology. And I guess you do touch on that, but but in this conversation, you do also talk about, Barbara, that the strategies that propagandists use uh, have remained the same for a very long time. And while the tools have changed, the technology tools have changed, um, those strategies remain the same. And that is also another way, understanding those is another way to try to be vigilant, as Avi says. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit more about what we can do as consumers, um, what we can do as people who are subject to tactics like repeat, 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 and then you can believe it, or things that, that seem so simple and obvious yet so, so mm-hmm. hard to combat. Yeah, I really appreciate the question from Avi. Um, I, I, I agree that we need to build resilience among the public so that we're less likely to be duped. I imagine that, you know, I spent most of my career as a, a prosecutor and we investigated fraud schemes all the time. And as soon as you kind of solved one, uh, the uh, the fraudsters were on to a new scheme. And that seems likely that in this world of deep fakes and the ability to deceive people, that there will always be an evolving threat. But we still have to be able to keep up and we, we can educate people um, about how to build resilience against these kinds of things. So I think um, a number of things we can do is um, teaching media literacy to our students, to our young people. That certainly is something that we ought to do. I think uh, we ought to teach media literacy to adults through um, you know, uh, social organizations like Rotary and Kiwanis Clubs and faith communities and community colleges. And there's so many great retiree learning forums. Uh, there are ways to do it there. But just some, some simple tips. When you see something online, um, you know, don't react immediately. Uh, perhaps you ought to um, look past the headline and read the story. Sometimes the, the headline doesn't match the story. Maybe you should look for a second source before you pass it on. I can recall a time when I myself was a purveyor of misinformation. Mina, I read something on social media that said Patrick Mahomes, the star NFL quarterback, would not take another snap for the Kansas City Chiefs until the team changed their name to something that was not offensive to Native Americans. Wow, I thought that was true. So I passed it on, retweet, wow, look at this. Good for you, Patrick Mahomes, taking a stand. And um, later in the day, I was discussing it with my husband and son. I said, did you see that story by Patrick Mahomes? And they said, no. And I said, really? And we talked about it a little bit and, and, and thought, I wonder if that's true. If I haven't seen it elsewhere, that's starting to sound maybe like it's not true. So I went back and looked at the original tweet that I had seen. And it was ESPN. That's pretty legit. But I looked a little closer, and the account was called Sprots Center and not Sports Center. And I only realized then that this was a fake and I took down my own tweet. But it was a really valuable lesson of how easy it is 
to fall prey to these kinds of false claims. And that one's re- relatively harmless. But, you know, you could pass on other things that are also false. So looking for a second source or more, I think, is one good tip. If there are data or statistics that are cited in what you're reading, find out what the sample size was. Was it three million or three? Because that makes a big difference in um, whether it's valid. Is there, you know, the the difference between causation and correlation is worth exploring. You know, there are all these studies that say families that have dinner together have children more likely to graduate from high school. And so I think... Therefore, uh, that means if you should have dinner with your family tonight and every night and your children will be more likely to graduate from high school. Well, maybe, but that's not the whole equation, I think, right? That might be correlation, but not causation. If you're having dinner with your family every night, chances are there are a lot of other great things going on in your lives that contribute to the success of high school students. Uh, You have a stable family life. You have a roof over your head. You can afford food. Uh, Parents who are invested in their children's upbringing. So all of those things are likely to contribute to that. So helping people be skeptical consumers of information, I think, is critically important. Um, Recognizing what something might be a bot online or might be an anonymous user online. Looking, um, you know, if a person has um, zero to one followers, but they have tweeted a million times, chances are that's a bot. Um, (laughs) and, And so there are things to look for. I share some of them in my book. And I think there will constantly be more as we, uh, as the technology evolves, and we need to learn more ways to try to keep up with the deception. Yeah, and I think you also just point to one that is really easy to do, which is just simply not to share something. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Just restrain, a little restrain. Just, right? Is this so hard? A little bit of restrain. <laughs> um, let me remind listeners: you are listening to Forum. We're talking with Barbara McQuaid. I'm Mina Kim. Barbara McQuaid's book is Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. It does an in-depth analysis of January 6th, the Stop the Steal movement and the disinformation tactics that were used there. And of course, we began the hour talking about Jack Smith's case on incitement of the January 6th insurrection uh, by President Trump with his claims of election fraud. And we have a question related to the case. The listener writes, do you have any insight into why the Supreme Court didn't take Smith's appeal in December? It was clear they would have to rule, and it was a more consequential case than many others. They have allowed a leapfrog. The court isn't in a vacuum, so they know what's going on. It sure gives the appearance that they're helping Trump with his delay tactics. Do you know why they didn't take Jack's appeal in Jack Smith's appeal in December? Well, no, and I think we could all speculate. I think, um, you know, there is certainly um, uh, some reason to believe that some of these justices are in the bag for Trump, but I don't think that's the reason. I think that to leapfrog a court is actually somewhat extraordinary. The more normal course would be to allow the appellate courts to decide the case, build a good record. Um, sometimes that can alleviate the need for the Supreme Court to decide a case at all. Um, and, and so I think what Jack Smith was asking for was itself quite extraordinary relief. And the fact that uh, they didn't give that doesn't suggest to me that they're therefore in the bag for Trump. They just um, declined to do something out of the ordinary and they wanted to do the ordinary course. And in fact, they are giving Jack Smith some relief now by considering the case on an expedited basis. So I, um, you know, certainly this court is very conservative. Certainly some of the justices have a worldview that is uh, in line with that of Donald Trump. But I don't know that I would agree that they're doing favors for Donald Trump. 
Well, the Zisner writes, could some kind of very independent institution help us sort truth and falsehood for Americans? Oh, that's a great a great question. And what could be a truly independent forum? I think it would have to be um, a forum that fact checks. Um, there are some out there that are private, some that are nonprofit. Um, factcheck.org is one. There's one called Snopes. Uh, there's another called PolitiFact. And there are nonprofits that, you know, try to, uh, they, they provide story, you know, a story that's been in the news, say the Hunter Biden laptop, and try to uh, talk about what has been verified by actual evidence as cited in reporting and what is mere speculation so that, you know, a reader can go there and look and find out. So what really is true about all of this? I've heard so many things. So that's useful. I suppose you, you could have nonprofit, but you would want to make sure that whatever it is in, is nonpartisan, not just bipartisan. And that can get tricky because even if people are not political um, in the sense of um, favoring particular candidates, they may favor you know particular um, viewpoints. And that can be challenging. So I don't know that we could achieve such a body unless we had, uh, you know, there was a, a body that was created in Michigan to try to defeat gerrymandering. And I think it's been largely successful. And that's because it is composed of um, a, a segment of voters who um, are uh, uh, aligned with the Democratic Party, a segment that aligns with the Republican Party, and another segment they call themselves independents. And so by having all of that representation, they were able to create maps for um, congressional districts and state uh, legislative districts that were gen genuinely nonpartisan. And so maybe a body like that could help to debunk false claims. But, you know, the claims just come so fast. There are millions of them every day that I don't know that you could have a body like that that would have the, the capacity to keep up with that fire hose of disinformation. I think some government regulation and some protection of ourselves is the best way to achieve that. Well, I appreciate you trying to make us aware of these manipulative tactics and in so doing, neutralizing hopefully their effects. Barbara McQuaid, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Mina. Great to be with you. The book is Attack from Within. Susie Britton produced today's segment. This Hour Forum is also produced by Caroline Smith, Mark Nieto, Tessa Paoli, and Dan Zoll. Jennifer Eng is our engagement producer, and Francesca Fenzi is our digital producer. Our engineers this week were Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard and Christopher Beal. Our interns are Emiko Oda, Annie Verton. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.